Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who have wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Let me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Amen. Thank you. All right. You may need to take the game down, Joey, to 16. It's nice when the preacher actually knows how to communicate that stuff. Right? <laughs> if you haven't met me before, my name is Matt McCartney. I have the privilege of serving as our director of worship and discipleship. Thank you to John and Ashley and Dan and John for leading for me so I can be up here to preach. I will say the one downside of preaching and being out there singing with you all is that I have to tuck this shirt in, which makes it really hard to raise your hands and worship because then you're, you're just, it ruins the whole system. <laughs> Thank you, Gene, for reading the word. I am excited and humbled to do this. Um, I do not take this task lightly, and I believe that God has a measurable value in Psalm 25 for every one of you. But I wanted to ask you a question as we start, and it's okay if you have. Have you ever thought about how Preaching's a little strange. Like you come here every Sunday to listen to one man talk to you. 
I, I sometimes think about that being strange, right? And it would be very strange if it was about me, but it's not. See, I'm actually hoping that I'll get out of the way and that the Lord will speak to you in ways that I can't, that the Holy Spirit would apply his scripture to you in ways I can't even imagine. And I have things that I hope to help the scripture be applied to you, but I know and trust that there's much in this psalm that we won't cover this morning, and I'm gonna trust the Spirit to make up for where I fail. So let me pray that that would be the case. Father, we ask for your word to be clear. We thank you for psalms like this that we can resonate with, that show us the emotionality of human life, but also that show us the immeasurable riches of your character and your goodness to us. In Jesus' name we pray these things, amen. The year was 2006. It was July, it was hot, it was in Pennsylvania, and a young Matt McCartney was attending a summer camp. Pimples were abounding, the smell of Axe body spray was in the air, and sync on the radio. And more importantly than all of that, the Lord was at work in a young man's heart. For the first time, I realized something that I still struggle with to this day. I liked the idea of Jesus as my savior, but I did not want him as my Lord. I liked the idea of him as my savior, but I did not want him as my Lord. See, I understood that, and because of that, I, I knew I wasn't really a Christian. I had prayed a prayer, I had been baptized, I had said the right things, but I wasn't willing to give up my autonomy. I wasn't willing to let somebody else call the shots, make my decisions, guide my life. I wasn't ready to make him my Lord. The idea of giving somebody else complete direction and control over my life seemed crazy and it held me back. But in this sweaty gymnasium, the Spirit of God grasped me and told me that the Lord was worth being my Lord. And I received that message. And from that day forward, I was no longer an autonomous sinner, but a redeemed servant of the Most High. Now, as I start to share some of my testimony, maybe yours is coming to mind when you first encountered the Lord. Or maybe you're wrestling with the same questions that I am or was at the time. Is this something I'm really willing to do? Am I willing to have a Lord? You know, usually when we come to faith, sometimes people ask you to do what's called the sinner's prayer. Have you ever, anybody ever had the sinner's prayer? In fact, um, recently I was told a story of uh, somebody that had the sinner's prayer in their voicemail. And so you were, had to listen to the sinner's prayer as you were leaving them a message, and when they were done, they would say, congratulations, if you've prayed this prayer, you're a Christian, you did it. And though I understand the sentiment of that, is that really how it works? And the sinner's prayer is really, the idea of it is just to give you some words that when you come to a place where, where the Lord is drawing you to himself, you can say, this is, this is my way of outwardly exclaiming what I believe is now true inwardly. But there's something usually missing in the sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer often teaches you that you are a sinner who needs forgiveness, not that you're essentially going to be entering into servitude that you are actually meant to be more than just receive the blessings of God, but receive God himself. And he is a Lord, make no doubt of it. And when we come to Psalm 25, I think we're gonna see 
what I would suggest is maybe a better version of the sinner's prayer. Not just for maybe somebody that's not a Christian that wants to consider becoming one, but the prayer of a sinner that applies both to entering the kingdom and keeping in the kingdom. This sinner's prayer is in Psalm 25, and I hope it will give us a better version of this, because here's the problem that I want to address. We say Jesus is Savior and Lord, but functionally, we live as he's just our Savior. Just our Savior, but we reject him in doing so as Lord. We make all our life decisions alone in isolation. We seek to read the word in our own power. We cancel those who disagree with us. We seek to find our whole identity apart from what he says about us. We long for and search after idols that never come through time and time again, money, success, control, comfort, security, and often sit in a place of, oops, I forgot to ask God. Can you tell that was a little personal? (laughs) We believe these things whether we think or not often. And what I believe and hope and have prayed that God wants to show us this morning is that's actually not supposed to be the way it is. In fact, to accept Jesus as your Savior and not as your Lord, it's actually not possible. I hope you'll hear that. I hope you'll wrestle with that. A true Christian needs to wrestle with the fact that you are accepting both. Jesus is your Savior. Yes, amen, I hope. He's also supposed to be your Lord. It's not an a la carte menu. It's like a Valentine's Day dinner. There's just the one option. You have to have both. It's like asking your boss to give you the money, but he can't tell you what to do. It just doesn't make sense. And some of us need to honestly wrestle with this. Have you done both? Have you really accepted the true Christ, not only the glorifying way to forgiveness of sins and life everlasting, but also the Lord of your life? Some of you really understand this, and maybe understandably so, like me, you're wrestling with that. Some of you are forgetting about this or ignorant of it, but some of us are struggling with like, no, I I understand. That's what's so difficult. I'm not ready. And I hope you'll hear the message I heard, don't wait. I used to say, I'll do that when I'm older. I want to get some things done my way first. I'll do it when I'm older. But here's what I believe the main idea and the beautiful message of Psalm 25 is for this this morning. Those who long for the Lord's leadership will experience the joy of the Lord's leadership. Those who long for the Lord's leadership will experience the joy of the Lord's leadership. As we walk through this psalm, we're going to see a David who is sitting in a place of waiting. God has not and does not answer his prayers by the end of Psalm 25. He's distressed. He describes himself as lonely. He's got enemies coming after him, and he is asking things of God, but he has not received an answer yet. Those things have not changed. He's in waiting. And when we're there, and when David's there, I think there are three things this psalm will help us see. There's only one place to turn. Only the humble receive the leadership of God, and the Lord can still be your refuge. Now, if those sound to you like I just said things you already know, just hang on, because maybe we need to be reminded. So first, there's only one place to turn. Verse one through three, it says, 
I lift up my soul, O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let my enemies not exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who want only treacherous. Now, this idea of being put to shame actually comes up in the beginning of the psalm. It comes up at the end of the psalm. It gives us some pretty good indications that this is a key element of what's going on. And it's a little bit confusing, but this is really his main ask. We think about when we're praying, a lot of times we ask things for God. This is, this is the main ask. Don't let me be put to shame. And what, is, what does he mean? He's in anguish over his enemies. There are people after him. We don't know exactly what's going on. At different points in David's life, there are literally people trying to kill him. This could be what he's referencing. They taunt him in evil, and they taunt his trusting in the Lord. But he's saying not be put to shame. He's asking that the Lord vindicate him. In other words, Lord, don't let my trust in you be proven useless. Don't let them actually win. See, if they win, there'll be no reason for people to believe that you are who you say you are. They're laughing at me. But in this, you see the setting of the psalm. You begin to see the mood. He's a little worried. He's distressed. He's waiting. And he wants God to come through for him. He worries God won't answer his prayers and will make him look like a fool for putting his trust in him. He is disappointed, possibly confused in his circumstances, wondering, where is God? Or maybe even, why is God? I have been there. But what do you, what do, you do? Seriously, what do you do when you're lost like that? What's your response? I want to tell you something that's going to sound like a really Christian thing to say. We're supposed to start where David starts. You lift up your soul. It's a really interesting phrase. He uses that in the Psalms a couple of times. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. See, this sinner's prayer, this prayer of David, is one of somebody who's saying, I need God to come through. But he starts by knowing there's still only one place to turn. To lift up your soul, think about when we pray for somebody, Lord, I lift up Jeff to you. What are we saying? We're saying, I'm placing him, my cares, my worries for him in your hands, right? You've seen in movies and in life when uh, a new mother, for the first time, the husband and wife are maybe gonna go out on a date so she leaves the baby alone for the first time with maybe her mother-in-law, somebody she loves and she trusts. But in the comedic movies we see, usually she has no good time at all because she's anxious and worried about the baby the entire time they're gone. That's not what we're talking about. This is a complete surrender and lifting up of your soul to God. To you, Lord, lift up my soul. In you, I put my trust. This is what we call parallelism in Hebrew poetry. They're meant to relate to each other, to complement each other, to expand on each other. To lift up your soul is to put your trust in. To lift up something is to relinquish control into the trust of something else. That's what he says. But what's really helpful and interesting about God, most of the time when you're waiting on something from somebody, maybe even frustrated with them, you're not also asking them for the help. 
God, God can do both. He can be where you lift up your soul even if you're waiting on him to come through. Even if it feels like he might be the reason that you're struggling. This is the beauty of God. He's got enemies after him. He doesn't want this to be proven useless. And he begins this beautiful phrase, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And in the midst of his anguish, in the midst of his worry, his theology kicks in. In verse 3, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. This is where he begins to remind himself, if I wait on the Lord, he'll come through. He'll come through. It's really hard to believe. And this isn't meant to be some great message of victory over all things in your life. But especially for you, for the Christian, there's a huge way in which this is ultimately going to be true. At the end, it is not us who will be put to shame, it's them. And I don't say that out of pride. I say it because the Bible says it. There's a beautiful truth here. Those who wait on the Lord, none of them will be put to shame. Don't ask me to explain how that's always going to play out. I know it's in there. He transitions into this beautiful, sort of repetitive continuation of his prayer, verses 4 through 11, which helps us another truth of how do we respond in, in this place of waiting for God to act. It says, only the humble receive the leadership of God. Only the humble receive the leadership of God. This makes sense as David begins to progress, right? He's, he's desiring for God to help him, and he begins to say, lead me. Right? Verse 4, I like how it begins, make me to know your ways. O oh Lord, teach me your paths, lead me in your truth, and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Notice the theme of waiting again. Why does he say, make me? I wrestle with that a lot this week. I think it's because David knows he doesn't always desire this. He wants to be led, but not always. There's parts of his soul that is torn. And also because he knows he's not fit to govern himself. He's beginning to describe a Lord. Somebody that guides him, leads him, teaches him, makes him to know his ways. And we see his tone. He's actually kind of longing for this. He desires the teaching of the Lord. Calls him the God of his salvation. Here we see both showing up. God's his savior, but also his Lord. He moves on to verse 8 and 9, the verses we read in our call to worship. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs the sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Do you catch how verse 8 phrases this? Only the Lord can instruct the sinners in the right way because he is good and upright. Only he actually knows what is good and upright. If a sinner's looking for the good and upright, there's only one place to turn. He's the creator of all things. And notice how David describes the who in this, the him, a sinner. And then twice he calls him the humble. Again, I think these ideas are compounding on each other. The sinner is humble, and the humble knows they are a sinner. And David certainly knows he's a sinner. Multiple times he asked God to save him, to pardon his guilt. Verse 11 in particular, 
It says, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And all this makes sense, right? David knows he's a sinner. He trusts in the Lord. Seems easy. You see the need. He needs him to be his salvation and his Lord. But how does that move to us? How do you actually begin to believe God is Lord? How do you actually receive this teaching, this leading? Do you ask him to make you? Do you long for it? There's a few ways in which we could talk about how one receives leading wisdom and teaching from God. But for time, let's just, let's just stick with what Psalm 25 teaches us. To receive the leading and teaching from God requires humility and longing submission to the teaching. Notice this is the key to unlock the passage. Make me to know your ways. Teach me. He instructs the sinner. He instructs and leads the humble. The one who fears the Lord will be instructed in which way to choose. You want help. You want wisdom. You want God to lead you. He leads the one who knows they are a sinner and who longs for it in humility. And this goes back to our main point. Those who long for the Lord's leadership receive it. Those who approach him in humility and reverence, knowing they are sinners and come for the guidance of the Lord. Now here's where this gets personal for us. That's really easy to say, but what is humility? And what if I'm not always so good at it? There's a really, really phenomenal book by a man named Andrew Murray called Humility. It's not long. It's in my top three favorite books of all time. I'd recommend it to you. He says this, is the essence of humility, the most basic element of humility, is recognizing that we are the creature and not the creator. So what does it look like to come to God for guidance? Well, be it, recognize you're a sinner, be humble. But what you're doing in that is you're recognizing he has the right to govern life, not me because he's the creature, he's the creator, excuse me, I'm just the creature. That phrase has helped me in so many areas of life when I say, why does God do that? But as we long for the humility to say, I actually need your instruction, I don't want you to just be my advisor. I want you to be my Lord. That comes from knowing I'm the creature and not the creator. So how does this apply to our hearts? Do you long for the Lord to guide you, or is he just your consultant? Sometimes he's just my consultant, if I'm honest. I've figured it out. I understood the passage. I think I know what God would want. I don't need to pray this prayer. Maybe I'll pray just to make sure I get his input before I move forward. Is that what he's talking about? Is that David's heart. Do you trust that he can use God's people, God's word, and your humility to actually guide you? Or do you just kind of ignore that and figure it out on your own? Andrew was reminding me this week of a game sometimes they play in youth group where you set out uh, a series of obstacles and you give the kids blindfolds, which all begins to start very well. And you say, you have to make it to the other end, 
but you have a partner and they're all yelling at the same time. You have to try to find your partner's voice to dictate how to get across without hitting the obstacles. So what happens is you begin to walk at the obstacles and when something's in the way, he says, move. Take a step to the right. So you take a step to the right, maybe take a step forward, go back, keep going, right? It's not particularly an easy game, especially with all the craziness around you of who's trying to instruct other people and you don't know if you're supposed to follow them or not. It's not easy. Can be done. Do you know it's way easier if I just went up and grabbed their hand and dragged them through it? Which one are you? You just want God to kind of shout when there's maybe something in the way, or is he actually the starting point? Because reality is we're walking blind more than we realize. I am walking blind more than I realize. People have asked me this week, where is this passage taught my heart here? I think I've got it all figured out when I come to make decisions. The Lord is my consultant way more often, Lord, forgive me, than he needs to be. But a Lord is not a consultant. He's the director. He starts the process, not finishes it. He's not a help along the way. He's the guide the whole time. You're just being dragged behind. That's the heart of David here. That's the heart of someone who sees God as the Savior and Lord. No one else is worth lifting our soul to, and no one else can lead us this way. It's humility that enters that gate. Lastly, our point three, the Lord is still your refuge. Interestingly, David kind of starts and ends here. He says a lot of things in these last couple of verses, but they all sort of, if we were to put them together, come under this, I need you. I take refuge in you. Guard my soul. Preserve me. He actually shifts here in verse 12 from talking personally and praying personally to talking kind of outwardly. He begins to describe this man who fears the Lord. Certainly, this would probably fit with a man who knows he is a sinner and humble before the Lord. But it's the man who fears the Lord who will be instructed. The Lord gives his leading to those who desire it, who see him for who he is, the Lord of their life and all creation. But this is where also the second part of our main point comes into play. Those who long for the Lord's leadership will enjoy the Lord's leadership. See, what I struggled to believe when I was um, sweating through my Axe body spray a couple years ago is that I thought having a Lord was a terrible time. I mean, who wouldn't, right? That makes sense. Nobody understands the idea of giving complete control of your life to somebody else. But what if it's actually the way to the best time? What if it's actually the thing that is meant to lead you and guide you away from all things that could hurt you, to guide you into truth and into everlasting life and ultimately into the presence of a loving Father, the God who created everything, where there will be no more tears and no more sorrow. What if having a Lord now, not just later, is the best way to live? What if freedom is not actually the path to joy? Something to consider. It's what I've found to be true in my life since that day. But look at the enjoyment he finds in what the, the fear and the submission to the Lord gives. Verses 13 through 15. His soul shall abide in well-being, 
and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Joyful submission to the leadership of the Lord leads to benefits. He says his soul will be healthy. His offspring will inherit the land. He'll have the friendship of the Lord, the counsel of the Lord. He'll have the revelation of the covenant of God. He'll have salvation, and he'll have help. David continues, verse 16 through 22. Turn to me and be gracious, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble. Forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me. I wait for you. It's very interesting because David, in his distress, in his trouble, in his waiting for the Lord to answer, describes blessings, which, by the way, the prayer hasn't been answered yet. And he finds enjoyment in being the, under the leadership of Christ, of, of Yahweh in this particular case. But he responds, again, by asking God to trust. He, he wants to trust God. He wants God's help and protection. This is strange to me when I first saw this, this idea that the one I'm waiting on can also be my help. That God's big enough to enter into you in your grief, even over the things you know he is in control over. Even when you're confused, why are you doing that, God? Why do you think he's saying, I need your protection? Guard my soul. Guard my soul. He needs preserving, he says. I think David is not only concerned about being overtaken by his enemies. I think he's also concerned about his soul in the waiting. He leans in more because he knows something that I hope we would all know. It took me a long time to learn. That in the waiting, in the affliction, it is so much easier to justify our sin. It's easy to go, God, this is your fault anyway. I might as well do that. It's easy to go, I need a way to feel better because this stinks. I need it. It's really easy to justify our sin in the midst of the trouble. And I think that's part of his worry, why he asks him to guard his soul, to protect him. And this is a great indicator of somebody that truly understands their sin and their need from preservation and guiding it. Here's the application for us. The second you begin to feel that you are immune to sin or wouldn't sin like that guy, you fell right into the trap. Especially when you're in affliction. We must not let the fear of shame, the fear of our enemies taking over to cause us into sin. We take refuge in the Lord that he will hold us fast. Oh my soul, we put our hope in God as we wait for him in the deliverance and help in our struggles. This is where we most often tempt to justify our sin. There's been a lot of documentaries and news coverage around 
a particular church that writes a lot of big songs and has had pastoral failures. And there was one in particular that was really influential in my life when I was growing up. And when he was revealed to be having an affair, somebody looked at me and they said, what do you think? I said, well, what do you think? And they said, I can't believe he did that. And I paused and I thought, I can believe it. I can believe it. I think we all could do that. I don't say that to scare you or anything like that, but I don't want to fall into the trap to believe that I can't be one bad day away from letting sin get to us. I don't want to, to sit and go, I'm good or I deserve this sin because life is hard. I want to cry out to God, guard my soul and protect me. I hope that you'd pray that for me and for each other. So how do we conclude this? There's a lot in this psalm. I don't want to um, be here all afternoon with you. Well, I do want to, but we won't be here all afternoon discussing everything in it. But I think we see the prayer of a man who is submitting and enjoying God as his Savior and his Lord. Enjoying it. It's not a burden. What if the path to true freedom comes with having a Lord? The true sinner's prayer is not about asking God for forgiveness, just but it's about asking him to come into your life to rule and reign over all that you are. Those who long for the Lord's leadership will enjoy the Lord's leadership. I want you, I hope and pray for you that you would not only experience, but enjoy the leadership of the Lord. Look to him as your refuge and wait on him. The danger of the Psalms is he says a lot of really Christian things that we go, yep, but they're still true. Look to the Lord wait on him as your leader, not just your advisor. And let me end with this. David calls him the God of his salvation. Maybe that's not true of you. Maybe for the first time today, you like me, back in that summer, are realizing you've only wanted God for the benefit. You wanted the pay without the boss. You don't want him to lead you. You're open to his input, but he's not your Lord. Maybe you don't even think there is a God, but maybe you feel lost, just as lost as I can when I long for the leadership of the Lord. Please don't wait. Don't be ashamed that maybe you've been in Christianity your whole life and never done this. It's okay. It's okay for the first time today to say, I want him to also be my Lord. I want to really accept the true Christ. Cry out to God in the words of David, O oh Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. See, we're, we're all sinners. That's why it's called the sinner's prayer. But there's a, a good and upright God that we have rejected in our own sin and folly, our foolishness. And yet he sent himself down in a human form, the Son of God, to live a perfect life, literally a perfect life, without sin, to be a perfect sacrifice for our sins. He died and was buried dead. Dead. To atone for our wrongs against a holy God, one we reject as Lord all the time. This should have never happened. He should never have had to die. 
And yet in God's mercy and grace, it absolutely did happen. I believe it with all my heart. He rose from the dead, conquering its power both in life and death, demonstrating he truly was the son of God. And if we lift our soul to him, put your trust, your faith in his sacrifice on your behalf, that it was enough for you, not just to get to heaven, but to live life now under his lordship. You accept him as savior and Lord. You will not be put to shame. Your sins may be many. O oh Lord, they are great. But his mercy is more. Those who have the friendship of the Lord, fear the Lord and know they are sinners and run to him in humility. I leave you with this. If he is not Lord of your life at all, consider it might be the best thing you could ever do. Let me pray for us. Father, I am dumbfounded and grateful that this truth has been revealed to me and that I was willing in that moment by the grace of your spirit to say, yes, Lord, I will accept you as the leader of my life, that I saw my sin and need for repentance. Lord, I pray that for those who are here this morning who may be wrestling with the same thing, you'd give them the humility to recognize the same thing is true today. We thank you, Lord, that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. Would you lead us, Lord? Would this church, Lakeside Baptist Church, be a church that does not see you as a consultant, but the Lord over everything? In Jesus' name we pray these things, Lord. Amen.